0: 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9, God's promise is not slack. This is a continuation of the last few months. Um, when, when I've been up here, we've been walking through 2 Peter, and, um, and last time we touched on uh, number one, it's already written in your notes, it's mindful of what? And 2 Peter chapter 3 starts off saying, this is my second letter to you, dear friends, And in both of them, I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. We need that, you know, all the time, especially all the time, (laughs) right? (laughs) Especially all the time. We need our, because our minds are just, it's the battlefield of the mind, right? The battlefield of the mind. All these thoughts fighting for priority of your focus. What are you going to focus on? You're going to focus on offenses. You're going to focus on news. You're going to focus on condemnation that you're feeling. You're going to focus on uh, other people and their perspectives or their perceptions of you or your performance. Uh, You're going to be mindful of the things of man, mindful of the things of the world, or mindful of the things of God and his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, and his value system, and his morality, and his mission for your life. And we don't want to get tripped up by focusing and being mindful of the things of men when we should be being mindful of the things of God on point, on mission. And so it's a battlefield going on, but we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. We need to interrupt some thoughts that are going on in our head and say, whoa, time out, that thought's done. I'm thinking on some new things. God, give me some new things to think about, some things that are noble and lovely and pure and admirable and wholesome. And I'm going to think on those things. There's a lot of good things we can think about all day long and a lot of exciting things we can think about all day long that God has for you and I. He has purpose for our lives and things to focus on that will fulfill us because we're working for his kingdom and he's living through us. And we get to experience his power and his connection points in life when we make ourselves available to him. And as we are busy about our father's business. Mindful of what? And and Peter's the one writing this, and that's somewhat comical because throughout the Gospels, we see Peter always mindful of the things of the world. And and he says, Jesus, all the crowds are waiting for you. Come on, everybody's waiting. And Jesus is out praying, and he turns to Peter and says, Peter, I have other towns and villages I need to go to. And Peter says, uh, Jesus tells Peter to walk on water. And, and Peter actually starts off, right, he's kind of mindful of Jesus. And then pretty soon, mindful of the wind and the waves. And, and down Peter goes. And, and Jesus gets him out of the water. They get back in the boat. Mindful on other things, but not mindful on the things of God. And then there's another time when Peter rebukes Jesus, because Jesus is saying, I must go to Jerusalem and I must die. And Peter said, what are you talking about? That's not how you rule the world. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. And Jesus was about his father's business. He knew what he was doing. And we're so glad he knew what he was doing. So glad for what he did. So, but Peter, man, he comes full circle and now he's telling us. In 2 Peter, he's telling us, be mindful. I, I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. Verse 2, I want to, you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what the Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. And so that's what he's doing, and that's, that's, that's for us. We can look at God's track record. We can be mindful of that. Right. Right. We can see God's principles. That he has, And his, the practices that we have, we can be mindful of those. We can be mindful of the promises that God has made for us. We can be mindful of the needs that are out there as the Holy Spirit gives us promptings and gives us solutions and gives us ways to engage for the kingdom of God yeah. with our families and our spouses. We can be mindful of the love that God has for us, for our spouses. And we can have forbearance, we, ta- we, can, we can learn not to take offense because we're so mindful of the things of God and we're ready to just pour out love and to walk in obedience to the Lord, raising children, influencing coworkers. So that was, that was last time. That was last month. Mindful of what? <clears throat> and now we move to, to number two. What happened to the promise? Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 4, he says, most importantly... I want to remind you that in the last days scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires and they will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again from before the times of our ancestors everything has remained the same since the world first was created we've touched on the term scoffers in the prior two chapters of second peter but here he states it again Uh, In the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. So scoffers, they mock the truth. They they ridicule anything pure or noble or innocent. They make fun of anything that is admirable or wholesome. These scoffers, he's already talked about it in 2 Peter 1, says they follow their own desires, their carnal nature, they're only led by They're driven by lust, they're driven by greed, they're driven by pride. They only kind of act and react in the flesh because their spirit is dead. Therefore, they show no restraint, they don't show remorse. You know, the epitome of of scoffing, I don't know if you can relate to this. For me, when I think of scoffers, and and there's plenty of examples around me at, at this point, this juncture of my life, but high school is a big time when people endure a lot of scoffing scoff fest at a school. And, um, and I just, things I remember hearing or seeing other people being scoffed at, you're saving yourself for marriage? What? You a prude? You won't watch this movie? Why? <laughs> he won't watch this movie. You don't want to see revealing pictures of beautiful women? Is something wrong with you? Oh, you won't, cu- You won't say. he won't say this cuss word. He's afraid to say a cuss word. You goody-two-shoes, mock, belittle, make fun of. But don't you believe in science? You believe, you believe in creation? You won't attend our par parties? What, you legalistic? You judging, you judging us? He thinks he's better than us. Pointing, snickering, laughing, name-calling. Making fun of things that are innocent, things of purity things of self-control, things that are respectful, you undermine them, scoff at them. And there have always been scoffers. Time of Noah, they scoffed at him for building that ark. They mocked him, crazy man building a boat. They scoffed at Jesus. So you're the Messiah, are you? You saved others, save yourself, come down from that tree. They put a a robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head, said, hail Jesus, king of the Jews, scoffing at the Messiah, scoffing at God who came to save mankind. In fact, they knew not that he went willing and purposefully to bear the sins of the world, to bear their sins, to conquer sin and death. And while they mocked Jesus, he said, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus told his disciples in John fifteen eighteen through 20, he says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than its master. And since they persecuted me, they will naturally persecute you. And if they'd listen to me, they would listen to you. No one enjoys being scoffed at, but we should expect it. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. Shouldn't be caught off guard by it. Should not be debilitated by it. Because there's, there's two different sides in this world. We're not all one happy human race. There's there's two sides, there's two sides. Solomon saw this, he wrote this, Proverbs 29, 27, he says, the righteous despise the unjust, the wicked despise the godly. Beyond political battles, beyond world wars is a spiritual battle. And certainly, you know, men can scheme and nations can form alliances and strategize. But behind the scenes, there's a greater power at work, and that's the spirit of darkness working in the world. In the lives of people all over the world, at the same time to undermine truth, blaspheme the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual presence, a scheming putting ideas in people's minds, setting up alliances and strategizing. You know, know, in the last couple years we have... We had COVID 19. We had a lot of rioting going on. Lots of things worldwide going on. Um, a lot of political change ups and unrest. And, and, and people, you know, and, and then there's a lot of conspiracy theories, and, and some of them are probably true of, of alliances and things that are going on. Um, but even beyond that and behind that, there's definitely. Something going on in the spiritual world. There's definitely something going on and connections being made and strategies and schemes being laid out. Definitely. Believe it or not, you and I were in the middle of a spiritual battle. Paul understood this, he instructed the Ephesians in Ephesians 6. He said, put on, verses 11 through 13, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. 2 Corinthians ten, three through 5 Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Satan would love for us to think that there is no spiritual war and that everything is simply material. But your spirit and your soul know otherwise. Peter tells us that scoffers will increase in the last days. They'll increase. So there's always been scoffing, but scoffing is going to increase exponentially in the last days. A lot of scoffing about truth. Jesus, that's interesting, because Jesus told his disciples that wickedness would multiply in the last days. He said, the love of many will grow cold, and there would be great falling away of faith. The Apostle Paul echoes Jesus in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Second Timothy, another letter he wrote to Timothy Chapter three, two through five, he says, "'For people will love only themselves and their money. "'They will be boastful and proud, scoffing.'" There's our word. "'Scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents "'and ungrateful. "'They will consider nothing sacred. "'They will be unloving and unforgiving. "'They will slander others and have no self-control. "'They'll be cruel and hate what is good. "'They'll betray their friends, be reckless "'and puffed up with pride, "'and love pleasure rather than God.'" They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. That actually kind of jumped out at me. I thought, I mean, a Christian is just supposed to to love everybody and and be witnessing to everybody and hanging out with everybody. and, And yes, we're supposed to love everybody, but Paul actually told Timothy, stay away from people like that. Stay away from people like that. So there's a balance there of knowing and and having some wisdom. Church, expect scoffing. Expect scoffing and give it very little weight. Like water off a duck's back. Did you know that we are supposed to learn to be happy when we're scoffed at? That we should be glad about it? Travis, that's absurd. That's stupid. Well, hey, 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 careful. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he said this. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for the great reward. A great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember that the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So I was trying to get my head around this and said, "What? Well, I'm supposed to be happy and glad when someone mocks me or scoffs at me because great reward awaits me in heaven. So, so is it, imagine if God pays in U.S. currency. And so-and-so calls me a dumb Jesus follower. And God, oh, whoop, I heard that. Gabriel, can you just go over there and put $2 million in Travis Beck's account? His bank <laughs> make account? And so, you know what? And God's, God's I don't know if it's U.S. currency, but God said he will reward us yeah. whenever we're scoffed at. Yeah. So I hear something like that. Ding, ding, payday. Payday. Yes. We're not out trying to make people mad, all right? That's not the the goal. But if it happens, if people persecute us for doing good, uh, we're rewarded for that. That's interesting, isn't it? Boy, wow. Then he provides us. uh, So Peter says this. We're going to get scoffed at. We're going to get scoffed at, and that should not at all debilitate us. In fact, we should actually be happy or glad when that happens. It doesn't feel good, but there's a payoff for it. Yeah. It's like working one minute and getting paid for a year. It's, it's not a bad deal, all right? He, then Peter says this. Um, so verse 3, in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth, following their own desires. And then he provides us with something more in verse 4, a specific argument that scoffers will use. So let's look again at 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 4. <clears throat> they will say, "What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created." Have you ever heard that argument? Peter tells us that now they will mock Jesus' promise to come again. What happened to the promise that Jesus was coming again? or That Jesus is coming soon. Where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back yet? You know, maybe some of you have raised that question or thought about, you know, where is Jesus? Because, you know, I've been around a few years and he hasn't come back yet. And I remember seeing, I remember my dad reading a book, and then I watched the movie, Left Behind. And I watched that movie, and I was sure that God was going to come back in the next 10 seconds. (laughs) And I wasn't going to miss it. And I remember hearing in church that he might return any day now, but I haven't seen him yet. I also read in scripture, I read Mark, as a kid, I read Mark 13, 35 through 37, which reads, you too must keep watch, for you do not know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you, what I say to everyone, watch for him. And I know kids, and maybe myself, who at night was watching through the bedroom window. To see, because I didn't want to miss his return or a rapture or or whatever is going to happen. And um, by the way, that scripture is not referencing physical sleep; it's it's referencing spiritual sleep. Those who've fallen away from the faith, it's referencing a heart position of a person who's indifferent to or hostile toward God, not longing for his return. Those who have faith in Jesus will be excited at his coming and filled with joy, unmistakable. Unspeakable. So, those who resisted God's love and mercies, who've turned away, who've despised his grace, will be terrified at his coming. Anywho, if you read historical records from World War I, World War II, a lot of people thought that um, that was probably the end of the world and Jesus would be coming back then, surely, but he didn't. In the book of Revelation 22, it's the last chapter, the last book of the Bible, Jesus says himself, he says, I am coming soon. And he says it three times. So where is he? Peter's going to address this in just a few verses, and, and, and context matters. But for now, know that scoffers will raise this argument. This will be a specific argument that's raised a lot. At the end of time. Come on, haven't things always carried on in such a way? You don't surely believe that, do you? That some human being lived, died, rose again, he's coming back to rescue you? Number three, Pete and repeat were in a boat. Pete jumped out. Who is left? Pete and repeat were in a boat. Pete jumped out. Who is left? The other guy. Pete. Oh. Allergy season is starting. Bless me. So what's the saying? If we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. And that's exactly what Peter's about to tell us. Look at these next few verses. 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, it says, They, scoffers, deliberately, say deliberately, forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. And then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Did you notice that Peter uses the word deliberately? They did not accidentally forget. These scoffers are not without evidence. They're not lacking opportunity to respond to the truth, but they deliberately, they willfully, they proactively forget. And friends, we're all in danger of forgetting truths that are inconvenient to our preferred perspective or immediate desire. It's important for us to proactively remember that which God has done and decreed. We're told to do so. Each day, our heart has the opportunity to grow softer or harder. Peter says they deliberately, willfully, proactively, they forget that God created the world, the skies, the ocean, the earth. When the Bible says the heavens and the earth, um, it's talking about the sky and the earth. When the Bible's speaking about Um, where God resides, another realm, it'll it'll say the third heaven. So it'll distinguish, usually there's a distinction of the third heaven. But here when it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, he's talking about the skies and the earth. Peter says that they, uh, and, and so, you know, it's hard to forget, but if you close your eyes and you plug your ears and you yell lies long enough and loud enough, and you place false infrastructure within public academia, you have a chance to deceive undisciplined minds. Peter says they deliberately forget that God created the world with the word of his command, word. He says that, and that's true, because the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, here's just look at these verses. Here's a few of the verses. Verse three says, then God said, let there be light and there was light. Verse six, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, that it be divided waters from the waters. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, so forth. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the heavens. Verse 20, God said, let the waters abound with living creatures, let birds fly Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to his kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and so forth. With the word of his command. And so God utters a word for something to be created and within that word is all of the all of the systems, all of the DNA, all of everything that makes whatever it was that he said happen. Yeah. Peter says they deliberately forget about that. They, for, they forget about the flood. They willfully forget about the flood of God's judgment. It is extremely difficult to forget the worldwide flood because of geological evidence because of the oceanic ridges broken up because of the folded rock layers it's i'm not jay Seeger, but he was here a couple weeks ago and on wednesday nights they're going through creation studies it's maybe a teaser for you at 6:30. 30. Uh, we meet in the cafe and then one of the groups breaks off and does creation studies with jay Segert, who has i don't know how many doctorates and how many fields of science and and fascinating it's difficult to forget that there's a worldwide flood Because in literature or legend in over 270 different civilizations from around the world, there's a Noah's Ark story. From their ancient literature, you look back and, oh, here's a guy and his family, and they take animals onto a boat, and they survive a flood that destroys the world. And here's a little chart that just talks about, it just shows a few there's a lot of the different uh, empires and regions of the world up there, just a few of the 270. And it shows how many of the detailed, ex- exact specifications of that story are within that culture in their earliest um, written literature destruction by water, man in sin, so they're going to be destroyed by God, favored family, and so forth. It's fascinating. <clears throat> to read those. <clears throat> um, so it's very difficult to forget. It's difficult to forget because of population graphs and growth rates and life expectancy, taking into account wars and pandemics. And if we reverse engineer our population at the, at the growth rate that it is and taking into account those things, do we go back how far? We go back to 2,400 BC. What happened at that time? Noah's Ark. number of people, and growth rate. It's very difficult to forget. And we will overlook common sense things and place lie upon lie upon lie in order to ignore truth, to deliberately forget. We will stack lie upon lie to discredit the account, to undermine the reality, and so forth. Peter continues in verse 7. He says, by the same word, okay, so there's a word that created the world. There's a word that that brought the flood of judgment upon the world in 2400 BC, 4,000 years ago. And then by the same word, verse seven, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when when ungodly people will be destroyed. By the same word, the God who spoke the skies and the earth into being will speak it into not being. Culture would like us to think that the universe is a random, uncontrolled thing that exists apart from authority and license, but it does not. God can close shop on planet Earth whenever and however he wishes by the same word. John 1, 1 through 3, says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You cannot separate God from his word. Right. He's, he's not man that he should lie. His word is powerful. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Later on, I don't know if this is in our verses, but later on the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Mm-hmm. That's Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 11.3 uh, says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Peter's referencing that same word, the same authority will judge the world With fire. The world and the earth is currently preserved, but reserved for fire. Peter says that the skies and earth are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Lots of things are going to happen at the end of days during judgment. Uh, during which judgment process begins, tribulations take place, believers are taken to be with God, millennial reign takes place, a final reckoning takes place. Peter is alluding to the ultimate, the conclusive, the end of time judgment, which where the skies and the earth will be consumed with fire. And then Peter, and I quote says, the ungodly will be destroyed. Just as in the days of Noah, there will not be a pause button, there won't be a do-over. The Bible gives specifics. Uh, Jesus sheds some light on, on some of what that'll look like and how that'll be. Talks about degree and duration, and the punishing that will take place. Some will be beaten with many stripes, some with few, in proportion to their willful disobedience. But no, make no mistake, they will Perish. The goal is not to use scare tactics, but sometimes reality is scary. And it would be wrong for God not to warn us about his perfect justice. Mm -hmm. It's better that we're aware of the judgment ahead of time. So in answering the scoffer's question as to why Jesus has not come back yet, and why is this day of judgment delayed, why the holdup? Number four, God's patient love. Continuing with our main text, Second Peter 3, 8 through 9, and here he shows it to us, right? But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent, Man, soon is a relative term. If I, if I want some popcorn and I put it in the microwave, soon is three minutes. If my wife is pregnant, soon, if she's not, then I know I'm... <laughs> Important to see. If she was, nine months is soon. Nine months is soon. So when Jesus, the word of God, who created time and space... That's a unique. That's probably another sermon for another day. But time is just is is uh, time is very normal for us. It's very abnormal elsewhere. I mean, we we see the sun. We have a 24-hour thing on our lives. God is outside of time and space. He He invented that. That's that's for us for this time that we have on Earth. But He's outside of that. Um. Yeah, you, a day is a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. Uh John 12, 49 through 50, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And um, and I believe that's true even with this, when he says he's coming soon. It's exactly what he was supposed to say. And he was supposed to say it three times in the book of Revelation. Uh, Not a mistake. And we don't want to be the person, look at this, you don't want to be the person, we're going to get to some conclusions on that in just a bit, but you don't want to be the type of person who looks to prove God wrong or who tries to find fault with Scripture. You want to be slow in your skepticism and quick in your faith. And maybe you have an analytical or philosophical mind, which is great, and God gave it to you. But, it's, and it's not wrong to ask honest questions, it's not wrong to seek clarity, but what type of heart do you approach matters with? That's usually the important issue. Yeah. Do you and I approach seeming contradictions with humility and diligence or with pride and justification? If we approach in the former way, we may not find all the answers immediately, but over time our faith will be strengthened and substantiated. There are those who look for reasons not to believe, and that is not a healthy starting point or a healthy heart position. When a deeper understanding of logic points toward a substantiated faith, it is illogical and rebellious to profess unbelief. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. A little little tangent, but Jesus, God said, I am coming soon. And and, and this might be helpful. There's a pie chart um, from the time of Adam and Eve to Abraham. Adam to Abraham is roughly 2,000 years. Abraham to Jesus was 2,000 years. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then said, I'm coming soon. That statement is not air. And it very well could be that we're in the final minutes, the final seconds of the soon. We're 2,000 years right now. A hockey game is made up of three periods. You know, first period would rightly be called the beginning. The second period would rightly be called the middle. The third period, one can rightly say they're watching the end of the game. Context matters. He will come at a time when it seems least expected by the world. He said this, Jesus said in Mark 13, 32 through 33, he said, but of that day and hour, no one knows with exactness. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. You and I don't want to be spiritually asleep. We don't want to be spiritually dead without faith when he comes. We want to be found trusting in him, walking by faith, serving the Lord, bearing fruit, spiritually speaking. There are certain mysteries that God purposefully does not reveal to us, and many times for our own good. And if you're a parent, you know why you do that. God wants each and every generation to be living by faith, growing in trust and obedience and living each day as if it were the last. An interesting thought is that Peter did not expect Jesus to come back during his lifetime. I don't think the apostle John did either. And and the reason we know that is Peter, he knew that he would one day die for the gospel. Jesus had revealed it to him in John 21. Jesus, by the Sea of Galilee, he said this to Peter. He said, John 21, 18 through 23, I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked, and you dressed yourself, and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around he saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus had said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? John, who wrote that, was the last disciple to die. All the others were killed before him. And uh, yet it didn't seem that he thought that Jesus was really coming back during his lifetime either. But we don't know when or what day, and we need to be ready. Peter says that one day is as a 1,000 years to the Lord, and 1,000 years is as one day. We should not forget this, church. Christ was not lying, and he's not late. He's coming soon, but he's not coming too soon, and he's not coming too late. He's coming right on time just like he did the first time. There was prophecies for so long of a coming Messiah, and the Jewish nation thought, oh, is he really coming? It's been 4,000 years. Oh, he came at just the right time. Yes, he did. Our main text, 2 Peter 3, 9, says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. no. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And here we come to the heart of God. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. This has always been the motive of God, always been the heart of God. He's not against us. God is not against you. Well, life sure is hard, and I don't seem to catch any breaks. And I know a good person that was really innocent and they were killed and left a family and so forth. And that doesn't make sense. And God is not against you. God is not against people. God's patient love is conveyed time and time again throughout the pages of Scripture. Beginning in the Old Testament, here's a couple references. Ezekiel 18, 23 it says, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Yeah, that's good. 1 Timothy 2, 4-6 through 6, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Paul wrote in Romans 2.4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It's not the wrath and the threats of God, but it's his goodness and kindness that draws us to himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's the good shepherd. Yeah. And we can either be sheep or goats. Say, take care of me. Take care of me, God. I entrust myself to you or... Screw you, God. I'm not going on my own. Jesus comes just as the prophets, Jewish scriptures predicted. He dies on a cross for your sins and mine. Give his life as a ransom for many. Not in a make-believe land or somewhere in fantasy or outside of space and time, but in real time on earth, just outside Jerusalem for all the world to take notice. Someone might argue, why doesn't he just save everyone anyway? even apart from their rebellion and resistance. But that is a foolish and irrational argument, for we would then cease to be human at all if he did that. God would violate the autonomy that he's given you and I to possess. Our relationship with God would cease to exist because our will would no longer be unforced and volitional, but mechanically programmed or erased. Peter says that God does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. The ball is not in God's court. The ball is in our court. Someone here may ask, or online may say, what does repent mean? Or what does repentance consist of? And the original word in the Greek was metanoia. It means to change one's mind. It signifies a change in the inner man. Biblical repentance involves the heart. It's the spirit and the soul of an individual. Repentance is not reciting some religious words, though you might express your decision audibly. It's probably helpful to do so. Repentance is not a physical behavior, though one's decisions will begin to influence the way a person lives as time goes on and little by little. Let me tell you what repentance looks like or what scripture says it to be. Repentance involves a turning to God, and that can happen in a moment, in a split second, and the implications are eternal. I stop trying to justify my own thoughts and behaviors, defending myself and my goodness or my worth or my value, and instead I choose to accept the mercies, the forgiveness, the graces, the love of God as provided for through Jesus Christ. When I repent, I'm entrusting myself back to God. I'm placing myself under his care and his authority. I'm adopted into his kingdom. When I repent, I surrender my rights, as it were, and instead become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I allow his spirit to teach me and his word to teach me day by day. I allow his spirit to lead me, to comfort me, to correct me, which I need a lot essentially to have ownership over my life. Mark 8:36 Jesus said, "What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul?" Yeah. Matthew 10:39 Jesus said, "If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it." Yeah. And what a life we find in Jesus. You find a peace that surpasses human understanding. You find a joy that resides somewhere in here, even in the darkest and gloomiest of times. Life in Christ is where it's at, eternal in nature, abundant and full of glory. Not free of troubles, not until heaven, but purposeful. What is God's Spirit saying to you today? Peter gives us four takeaways that we've touched on. I should say we've touched on four of his takeaways. And what are you mindful of? Do you need to fix your thinking? Your mind, right things, meditating on the right things, taking captive the wrong things. Second thing was that of scoffers. You expect it. Don't let scoffers get under your skin. Don't let them shake your faith. Their judgment is certain. There's a certain judgment, a just judgment that is coming. And you're rewarded if people scoff you. Three, Jesus is coming. God loves you. He's a good father. And if you haven't ever done so today, you can, even where you sit, you can say, I am done trusting in myself. Jesus, I am trusting in you. I am following you. I accept your forgiveness. God, I accept your love and your grace that you poured out for the sins of the world. I accept your invitation to adopt me. Train me in your righteousness. And he'll do that. I said four takeaways. That was only three. Three takeaways. All right. You pray with me. God, thank you for this day. You're the great God. And you're awesome. And we praise your name. You are awesome, God thank you for the good works, um, the good work you're doing in our lives. Thank you for caring about us enough to speak truth to us. Help us not to be deliberate in resisting you. Help us not to be willful and proactive in our stubbornness and in our self-centeredness and I thank you, Lord, that we can come to you as a child and you will receive us unto, you, unto yourself. And so, Lord, I pray for our church, Life Church, again, Lord, that um, we could be full of your life, God, and we could be watered by you daily, nourished by you, by your word, and by your spirit, Lord. Be the real deal, Lord, not performance, not masks that we're wearing not memorized, cliche terms and sentences and phrases that we've learned in Christendom, but just an authenticity, Lord, a genuineness, a real heart, your heart, Lord, that's growing inside of us. May your will be done on earth as it is is on heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.